when I was young in elementary school, this may come as a surprise to many of you, um, I spent quite a bit of time in the hall in trouble. Others said that I love to have attention. I love to be the center of attention. I think they're exaggerating. But nevertheless, I spent probably as much time in the hallway as I did in my own seat in the classrooms. And the reality was, is I had very little fear of my teachers, of what they thought or of what my peers thought. At least not fear of judgment, so to speak. I don't remember what grade it was now, but my mom, who's sitting right over there, when she was in the process of becoming a full-time teacher, she was substitute teaching. And it just so happened on one morning, she was a substitute teacher at the school that I attended. Of all of the days to not get sent into the hallway, it would be this day. But I kept my track record intact. I was... Don't even remember what I did. I was sent out in the hallway, sitting out there by myself, not really thinking anything of it. It had happened so many times. And yet, as I'm sitting out there, the elementary school they were part of, it was a big round school. It was entirely in the round. So the hallways moved around this way and then disappeared around the other way. And to my left, I hear voices coming around the corner and a line of, of students that are being led down the hallway by my mother as I'm sitting in the hallway in trouble. And you know what that's like when all of a sudden something that you don't want somebody to see sees you for who you really are and the fear of God falls upon you? And she just walked by and she just said, oh, we'll talk about this when we get home. That's all she said. And I was scared to death the rest of the day. But in reality, it wasn't until that moment, if you would have asked me at least, as I went day in and day out at school as a young guy, thinking about the way that I behaved toward authority, toward others, I would have said something along the lines of, I mean, who really sees anyways? Who's going to ever know? On that day, the judge knew. And so it is in Isaiah 29. Isaiah is coming around the corner, so to speak, and confronting the southern kingdom of Judah. That is Jerusalem, Ariel. And he's confronting them in the fact that they think that, as we see in verse 15, who sees us and who knows us? We can do whatever we want. This is what Isaiah is confronting. And what we're going to see in Isaiah 29 this morning, in the back half of the passage, is not only a strong rebuke, a great rebuke, but we're going to see following that. We're going to see a great reversal, and we're going to see a great revival. Because the mess that we make in our lives, oh, just the madness of our own rebellion what we so often forget is that those are often the key ingredients. In fact, the only ingredients that we contribute to God's great work in the world in saving sinners and establishing His kingdom for His glory. This is our great contribution. is our unbelief and our sin. It is God's great contribution to save sinners and for that He gets all the glory. 
And that's exactly what we'll see in our passage this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29, and there we're going to find the southern kingdom sitting in a hallway, and Isaiah's coming around the corner, and he's going to bring a great rebuke, Isaiah 29. And you'll remember, we were in the first half of the chapter last week. Then in the first half of the chapter, Isaiah had already rebuked them for hypocritical worship. That with their lips they honored God, but their hearts were far from him. Well, here he's going to continue on in verse 15 and 16 after a a brief mention in verse 14 of grace, of the wonderful things that God is going to do even in the face of their sin. And he turns again, once again, to their sin and unbelief in verses 15 and 16. Read along with me Isaiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 15. Begins with that word, ah. It's better translated, woe. Here he speaks yet another woe. It's the second one in the chapter. Woe, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make me, or or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? We're not told explicitly in this part of the passage what exactly the plans were that Israel was making. It might be referring to the alliance with Egypt that they make at the beginning of chapter 30. But the plans themselves really aren't the issue. The issue is that Israel is making plans without any reference point to God whatsoever. They were his covenant people. They had been redeemed by his grace. He had given them his law, and yet they acted as if they had no reference to God whatsoever in their counsel. The counsel themselves, the plans themselves, aren't really the issue. The motivations are the issue. Because by all appearances, well, they seem to be really spiritually minded. Remember what we said last week? They're just going through the motions. In reality, they were going about their lives as if God were a non-factor. To put it another way, they lived like practical atheists. Who sees us? Who knows us? This is the spirit of sinful man. And the spirit of sinful man throughout every age is a spirit of autonomy, of to-myselfness that ultimately rejects God's law and denies God's sovereignty over us and lives instead as if we are sovereign over ourselves. Not as if God's word is ultimately what matters, but ultimately that it's our word and our thoughts and perhaps even our feelings that matter the most. But I want you to consider for just a moment how different the God of the Bible is from the little g-god of practical atheism, from this little g-god that we see here in verses 15 and 16. This is what David writes in Psalm 119. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where will I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uppermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me and the light 
about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. What David is saying is essentially affirming the truth that God is everywhere at once. This is what the old theologians would refer to as God's omnipresence. He is all present. God's omnipresence refers not only to his presence everywhere at all times, but it also refers to his infinite and powerful influence in all places and over all things. Everything in heaven and earth are subject to him by his power because he sustains all things. And because he is present in all places at once, that means that God knows everything and God sees everything. That is why David wrote, even in the darkness, it's not, like, it's not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You and I, we stumble in the dark. Why? Because we can't see. We have no knowledge of where things are. But what David says is that even the darkest darkness is to God like the brightest light. Or as the great Stephen Charnock put it, his power reaches all and his knowledge pierces all. God is all places at once. He sees all things and he knows all things. But here we see in Isaiah 29 that Israel's practical atheism says, but who sees us? Who knows us? And it's this kind of thinking, says Isaiah in verse 16, that has turned everything upside down. He says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He didn't make me. Or the thing formed save him who formed it? He has no understanding. He says, you're the clay and God is the potter. And the potter is sovereign over the clay. He can do whatever he wants with the clay and the clay can't say anything about it. And they can't do anything to stop him. But you're acting as if you're the potter and God is the clay. But in fact, this is what sinful man has always done. That's why Mark Twain once quipped, God made man in his image and man's been returning the favor ever since. We like to fashion ourselves as creator and we like to fashion God in the way that we want and we prefer Not so that he's the almighty creator God of the universe, so that he becomes rather some kind of cosmic vending machine as he exists for our own wish fulfillment. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not a God who is all places at once, sovereign over all things, who sees all things and who knows all things. And yet this is the God that in their practical atheism, the nation of Israel had rejected. Brothers and sisters and friends, how susceptible are we to this kind of practical atheism? Of affirming God on the one hand with our minds and yet denying Him with our hearts and with our lives. How often this week have you committed sins in the presence of God that you would never commit in the presence of other people? In this age of internet pornography, which has enslaved so many in the church, the vast majority commit this sin in private, not in public. But it's not just sexual immorality, but also drunkenness and perhaps even gluttony of secretly sneaking one more drink or indulging in one more snack when nobody's around because you know it's sin and you know exactly what they would think and what they would say if they saw you doing it. 
But God is everywhere at once. God is right there with you, around you, next to you. And he sees everything and he knows everything. Brothers and sisters, we know if we have become practical atheists, if God's presence has less influence on us than that of mere humans. We know that we have become practical atheists if we fear man who can harm the body more than we fear the one who can throw body and soul into hell. You know you're a practical atheist if you're more scared of your spouse catching you than you are of the almighty judge of the universe. You know at that point that you and I, in those moments, are really not unlike Israel in Isaiah 29. That we fear man more than God. And at the heart, in those moments when nobody else is around and nobody else, no other person has eyes on us or knowledge of our doing, we say, well, who sees us? Who knows us? And the answer is, God sees you. God knows you. And he knows not only what you're doing, but he knows all the way down to the very depths of your heart why you're doing what you're doing, ultimately for your own glory and not for his. And that is to each one of us sin. Brothers and sisters, or friends, if you're here gathering with us and you're a visitor with us, listen to me. You cannot hide from God. There is nowhere you can go and there is nothing you can do where God does not see and God does not know. But sinful humanity from the beginning of the age when sin came into the world has always tried to hide from God. Isn't this what Adam ultimately did? That when he sinned, he thought he could hide from God. But our hiding is ultimately futile. In fact, the Bible says no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we will give an account. Oh, listen to that phrase. We think that we're clothed and hidden. We think that we can wear masks and nobody will see us or know us. But in the eyes of God, all of us are naked and all of us are exposed. There's nothing that we can hide. He sees all of our blemishes. He sees all of our sins. He sees all of our ill-fitted motivations. He sees everything that nobody else around you, including the ones who know you best, including the ones who are almost omnipresent in your life, but aren't because they're human, but are around you the most. God sees those things. God knows those things. Both what you do and how you feel and how you think and the motivations of your heart, nothing is hidden from him. As David said, where can I go that that you would not be there? I think things in my life are in the darkness so that nobody can see, but even the darkest darkness is the brightest light to the Lord God. This needs to be a humbling reality for us as we are always prone in our unbelief, even as it sneaks up on us, to drift into this kind of practical atheism of honoring God with our lips but having hearts and private lives that are far from him. But thankfully, our blindness, as we're going to see in the following verses, cannot defeat the potter. He is sovereign. And we're going to see in verses 17 to 22, as one person put it, 
that human defiance is the madness out of which God's grace is creating something altogether new. It's what we see in verses 15 and 16. Here's some of the raw materials. Is this unbelief and this practical atheism. It's what we bring to the table and it's what God uses in his grace to change and transform and to redeem as he creates something altogether new for his glory. Sinful man will not prevail. Verses 17 and following testify to the fact that God will prevail. And so in 15 and 16, we saw a great rebuke, specifically against this practical atheism. But now what we're going to see in verses 17 to 21 is a great reversal. We're going to see the moral order righted. That which was turned upside down is now going to go right side up. Look at verse 17. He says, Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. Isaiah sees the forests of Lebanon as a picture of human nobility and might. The, the forests of Lebanon were, were forests with gigantic trees. It's where many of the wood was brought in for the construction of the temple. Massive trees, strong wood, and here he compares it ultimately to the pride of humanity. It's a picture of human nobility and might, but God is on a mission, as we saw earlier in the book of Isaiah, he's on a mission of spiritual deforestation. He wants to cut down the pride of Lebanon and he wants to humble it to a humble field. Oh, but then notice what happens. God is going to take that ordinary field and he's going to transform it, look at this, into a mighty forest. Not like the forest of Lebanon, but a mighty forest, a forest to his own glory. Right now, this foolish world says in its heart, there is no God. The values of human culture don't make sense. We don't even know what a man or a woman is anymore. We see injustice. From the top levels of our institutions all the way to the ground levels of our neighborhood. That doesn't take a 24-hour news cycle to know that our world is irreparably broken. And yet God is promising that in spite of everything in this world that is backwards, he's promising through Isaiah that he is going to be the one that changes things and turns them around. Look at verses 18 and 19. Here's what's going to happen. In that day, Isaiah sees a day coming, specifically the day of the Lord. He says, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. Remember earlier in the chapter, the words of a book were closed. Verse 11, they were sealed. They were essentially Deaf to it, they couldn't hear its words, but now it's being opened. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. All the way back in verse 9, we see that they had blinded themselves and they were made blind, but now the blind are seeing. All of this is spiritual language. And notice in verse 19, that the meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Just catch some of this. God will make the spiritual deaf to hear and the spiritual blind to see. He'll cause the meek to obtain fresh joy and he'll turn all injustice, as we see in verses 20 and 21, into perfect justice. The ruthless is going to come to nothing. The scoffer is going to cease. 
And all those who watch and do evil, who celebrate it, oh, they're going to be cut off. And in verse 21, all of those corrupt courts in which the meek are misjudged and trampled upon, they are going to be shut down and only justice is going to reign in its place. Deaf hearing, blind seeing, the meek obtaining fresh joy, turning injustice into perfect justice. All of these are common images used by Isaiah throughout his book to describe the day of the Lord. Elsewhere in chapter 35, he adds the image of the weak and the lame being strengthened to walk in that day. In chapter 61, he describes that day as a day of good news of liberty being proclaimed to the captives. In other words, it's a day of gospel, is what Isaiah says. And so what is it, according to Isaiah, when we look at one end of his book to the other, what is it that will mark the great day of the Lord? Deaf hearing, blind seeing, lame walking, good news, and liberty. But when will that day come? What will that day look like? Those were the questions of the very last Old Testament prophet as he rotted away in jail. Keep your fingers here on Isaiah 29, and I want you to turn to your right to Matthew chapter 11. When is this day coming? What will it look like? Will it be a powerful act of God wiping out his enemies? How will this justice be established? How will the blind see and the deaf hear? Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And now look at what happens in verse 4. And I want you to keep in mind everything we just talked about, about the day of the Lord in Isaiah. And Jesus answered them, Go tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. (laughs) Lepers are cleansed. In other words, the dead are being brought to life. The deaf hear. The dead are being raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Isaiah promises fresh joy is coming for the meek. And in the Gospels, we see the first stage of that promise fulfilled as fresh joy in Christ begins to flood the world, beginning with his very own disciples. You remember what he says to him in John 15? He says, all these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. (laughs) Joy's coming for the meek. When's that coming? On the day of the Lord. What's that day going to look like? It's going to look like deaf hearing, blind seeing, lame walking, good news being preached. That's what's going to happen. That once dead, once blind, once deaf, once lame sinners made alive, given sight, strengthened to walk, and filled to the brim with fresh joy. That's what Isaiah saw, and that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in the world through the proclamation of the gospel today. So brothers and sisters, what is the cure to practical atheism? Answer, it's fresh joy in Christ. 
<laughs> it's fresh joy. It's joy. Thomas Chalmers wrote a helpful little book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That word expulsive is just, it's a big fancy word that says the act of expelling something. When you expel, you remove it. The power of, the power of a new affection, of new loves, of new joy, expelling stuff from your life, namely sin and unbelief. This is what he writes. He says, we only cease to be the slave of one appetite because another taste has brought it into subordination. He's just saying that there's always something in our lives that we love above everything else. And when something else comes along that we love more than that thing, that previous thing gets subordinated, put under this new thing that is now a greater object of our love and affection. He says a youth may cease to idolize sensual pleasure, but it's only because the idol of material gain has gotten the ascendancy. That he stops loving sex because now he loves money. He goes on, there's not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. Everything that you and I pursue is that which we desire in its utmost at the very bottom levels of our heart. It has captured our love. It has captured our affection. It's what we want and desire and love the most. That's why we pursue it. Because every single one of us, at the very core of our being, desires to be happy. And we will pursue our happiness at all costs. And it will either be in God or it will be in something else. This is what Chalmers is getting at. But he concludes. He says, Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, the only thing that can overwhelm the joy that is promised in sin, the joy that is promised to you in that moment of fleeting pleasure, even in private, the only thing that can expel our love of those things is a greater love and a greater joy. The only thing that can overwhelm the joy promised in sin is greater joy in Christ. That's why one pastor, John Piper, summarizes well what Chalmers is saying. He says this, Christianity is a divine project of replacing inferior joys in inferior objects with superior joy in God himself. You realize that's the whole pursuit of the Christian life by his grace is joy in Christ. And when joy in Christ becomes the greatest joy and the greatest love becomes that which captures our affections, then those other things become subordinate to that and are expelled, especially those things that ultimately don't bring what they promise, namely sin. You say, well, how do we do this? How, what do I do if I want fresh joy? How do I get it? And the answer is found back in Isaiah 29. It's found right there in the heart of verse 19. Who is it that will obtain fresh joy in the Lord? And the answer is, is to make yourself meek. It's to humble yourself. Because God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. It's the meek and the poor alone whom God blesses. And so, if you want to be honest, it looks a lot like a life that's characterized and shaped by our order of service this morning. Of starting our days with big thoughts about God, not big thoughts about self and circumstance. 
It's about going to his word and being reminded of, of who God is. Not little bitty thoughts about God, but big thoughts about God. Not the kind of little bitty thoughts about God that let us go through our day thinking who sees me and who knows. But big thoughts about God that goes, he's everywhere. He sees all things. He knows all things. He is the sovereign king. Oh, we want that calibrating our day in the same way that we want that calibrating our whole time together. That's why when we come together as a church, we're not interested in more navel-gazing. I don't want 10 more steps on how to have a better life. I don't need that. I spend the whole week staring at myself. I need to look to Christ. I need a God that's bigger than me. That's why we start our gatherings with a call to worship. It's why we sing big God songs when we start to calibrate our hearts around this God. And then it's in light of his glory that now we can humble ourselves and have a right estimation of who we really are. And that is that we are sinners and sufferers in a world that has been cursed by sin. And that left to ourselves, oh, our affections would lead us astray and we would never choose God. We'd be just like Israel in verses 15 and 16. And yet God in his great mercy has not only humbled us and brought us to a place where we can where we can define the reality of our lives but that we might actually for the first time begin to be honest. I wonder for how many of you when you come to the gathering on Sunday morning in our prayer of confession that might be for some of you the first time that you've been genuinely honest with yourself all week. That it looks like no longer hiding in an illusion and going through the motions, but clearly seeing the reality of who you really are in light of God's glory. And then all of a sudden you start getting real with God and you start getting real with others through the confession of sin. And then what you find on the other side of the confession of sin is not nothing. What you find on the other side of that realness that was really scary and really intimidating, what you find on the other side of that is a very real and very big Savior. A big Savior that promises fresh joy for sinners. The kind of joy that can expel lesser loves from your life that keep leading you astray and into sin. Friends, this is nothing new. You realize this is what God has been doing in the world since sin came into the world. That's what we see in verse 22. Therefore says the Lord who redeemed Abraham. <laughs> This isn't a new thing that Christ has done. Christ is just fulfilling what God has always been doing. And that is saving a people for joy. Thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob will no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. That what we see here is joy in Christ for all people fulfilling God's old promises to Abraham. You realize that joy is the direction that God has been heading from the very beginning. It is that we have been created not only to glorify God, but to do what? To enjoy Him forever. And sin ruptured that. And ever since sin came into the world and God gave that first gospel promise of a seed to come from a woman who will crush the serpent's head, that promise has always been a promise about joy. 
I'm going to bring sinners who have rejected me back into fellowship with me. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. And whatever, whatever joy sin has robbed, I am going to restore, restore. And they will not only glorify me, but they will enjoy me. That's Christianity. Not some list of rules. Christianity is join God. And that's what we see here. That the God who sees everything and knows everything began it in sovereign grace. He's going to continue it in sovereign grace and he will ultimately consummate it in sovereign grace. And that wherever his grace goes, we notice here in these handful of final verses, great revival breaks out. In verse 22, shame is removed. Verse 23, false and fake worship gives way to true worship and awe. Verse 24, spiritual ignorance gives way to true understanding. It's interesting. Luke described Isaiah's scene in this way in Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came on every soul. That's what revival looks like. So the way that we often fashion revival with big tents and emotionally manipulative sermons and music. Now, what is true revival according to God's word? It is when God brings lots of once dead sinners into life and communion with him, begins instructing them by his word and filling them with awe of worship-filled, joy-filled awe of sin-killing Joy and awe for the great, 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 great God of their salvation. The fuel for true revival, says Isaiah. Not only in our own church, but even in your own lives. As I know, there are many of you whose hearts feel cold toward God, whose affections have not been stirred for anything but this world for a long time. And you long to have affections stirred for Christ. Oh, humble yourselves before the Lord. Get real with God. Get real with others. And know that that is not only His grace bringing you there, but His grace, His sufficient grace will meet you there in Christ. True revival, not only in our church, but in our own lives, looks like fresh joy in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, who doesn't want joy? Is that what you want? Oh, that's what I want. And if I'm honest with you and you're honest with me, I want to want that more than I want it. Because I don't want it enough. I still too often settle for lesser loves. And so do you. But here through Isaiah 29, God is calling us to a greater joy and a greater love in a great Savior who takes all of the raw materials of your sin and of your unbelief and he takes it, and he forgives it, and he cleanses you, and he reshapes in its place something altogether new. Oh, friend, if you're visiting with us today, I, I wonder if that's something you're looking for, if that's something that you want. That is what God has promised to every sinner who had turned from sin and trust in Christ, who has given himself as a substitute in the place of all those who Repent and believe in him on a cross. And then you can know that his offer is made good because he was raised from the dead in power three days later. And so will it be for you that God 
of grace, the creator God who knows and sees all things, will raise you to new life in Christ. New joys, new loves. Pray with me.